You know, I just had an epiphany. Oh, good. That 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 what you just said about having a pill available and people being against that, and I think a lot of people would be against that. Um, that you just take whatever you want tells me that this isn't really about autonomy at all. No. I mean, autonomy is the big thing that people will will put up. Like it's all about you and your your choice. But then why not make it available to anyone to make that choice for themselves whenever they want? It's about a process and control and risk, the risk associated with the unpredictability of the behavior of populations. And in that sense, it is very much part of our kind of post-liberal bureaucratized moment where everything must be controlled, every emotion must be stated so that it can be put onto a script that is more predictable. It's not about helping people at all. I am Kevin Ewell, Professor Emeritus at the University of Sunderland and Head of Humanists Against Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, I think most people, just kind of speaking from my own experience, I kind of always would have been in favor of assisted suicide, assisted dying, whatever. We'll talk about what to call it in a moment. But uh, I just thought, you know, yeah, people should be able to make that kind of choice. And I was just very passive about it. You know, being a Canadian, I saw it was happening and I, just, I didn't think anything of it. And then these stories started coming through and I, I realized something not good is happening here. Imagine choosing death over homelessness. That's what one St. Catherine's man is contemplating. Tonight on City News, we continue to delve into medically assisted dying and how some believe it is their only option to living in poverty. When a Canadian veteran picked up the phone and called Veterans Affairs Canada to get treatment for his combat-related PTSD and a traumatic brain injury, he expected help getting better and getting his life back. Instead, he got an unexpected and unwanted offer to help him end it through medically assisted death. But now medical assistance in dying, or MAID for short, no longer requires a terminal diagnosis. Lawmakers are now assessing current guidelines and whether mental suffering is enough, even whether people can pre-approve MAID while they're still able to make the choice. How can our government keep allowing and expanding MAID with still so many cases of wrongful death. Trish Nichols' brother-in-law refused treatment for depression and died at his request in Chilliwack in a case that raised questions about easy access. Her behavior also shifted. After a car accident, Donna Duncan had been waitlisted for specialized care for complex pain. Her medically assisted death in Abbotsford is now the subject of a rare police investigation. It is imperative that these safeguards ensure vulnerable people are provided care as a first option, not death. So why should people worry about this? Well, I think there are three different aspects to the question. First of all, it's based on fear. So it's fear of a bad death that actually propels this whole thing. And most people actually die peacefully. And not only that, but in places where it is legal, then you find that it doesn't really help. So for instance, in the Netherlands, where it's been legal since 2002, it's, they still have a, I've just seen a study recently that shows that up to 42.8% of people experience restlessness and pain in their final 
um, hours and days. So it's not going to resolve the problem of the bad death. So that's one aspect. It's not really the solution to the problem that it's seeking to solve, if you see what I mean. Second thing is it results in real harm, as you have said in about the stories emanating from Canada. There are people who are dying unnecessarily because of this. We take these lives, we take people's lives very, very seriously when it comes to capital punishment. But I think that people don't take it so seriously when it comes to assisted suicide and euthanasia. So I, I think there are real harms. There is a terrible story about a young man in the Netherlands suffering from autism and no other underlying physical or mental illness. And he was euthanized by his doctor because he couldn't make social connections. There have been at least eight euthanasias in the Netherlands for the only, only for the reason of autism. And I think these are real harms. I think this is, this is a terrible thing. Third, I think it's a moral harm that we face. Um, there, it's a dramatic moral step, no matter how people try and pose this question to eradicate some human lives in the, just simply because they are wretched. I think that is a real moral problem. It means that there's no more moral equality that we are saying to some people that you should actually jump off the proverbial precipice and to others will strenuously try and prevent your suicide. And I think that's a very dangerous message. It undermines moral equality. When you say it undermines moral equality, what do you mean? Well, I mean, when, you know, when you're looking at people, for instance, using murder laws as an example, it is just as wicked to kill an 86 year old who does not value their life as it is to kill a 24 year old who does value their life and has it all up in front of them. It is wrong to take a life. And I think that's what we are faced with is, is taking of lives which I think is, you know, why would that be different for suicide? Why is it any better for an 86 year old to kill themselves or a 24 year old to kill themselves? There's a moral equality in the, on the, on those kind of grounds reflected in our murder laws. But also if we come across and we see somebody who's about to kill themselves, we wouldn't stop to interrogate them to see whether their lives are worth keeping, we would simply try and save them just as we would somebody who's drowning, hopefully. Um, so I think that's what I mean by moral equality. We accord human life a certain equality, uh, where in terms of trying to protect it and save it. And that's what this really jeopardizes. This idea of moral equality is really interesting because there've been a number of cases just around other social issues where I've started to wonder if that is slipping away. This idea that every human life has some kind of fundamental equality about it. Um, that, for instance, in Canada at the moment, there's dis there are discussions about, you know, that maybe Indigenous people should be treated differently in the criminal justice system. Uh, and I suppose the argument is that well, you can have an ideal of equality, but that's not real in practice. In practice, people are unequal. People have different abilities, um, different approaches to life, different things that they're able to do. So. Is it not sort of holding up an ideal against the material reality of inequality in society and that maybe we have to sort of make adjustments for the fact that not all human life is the same? Well, obviously, all human life isn't the same. I mean, some individuals are more valuable than others. 
But I think it, it's the overall principle that I'm worried about rather than the individual circumstances. And it works a little bit like uh, capital punishment, which I uh, oppose. And I oppose capital punishment no matter who it is that's actually being killed, because I think, or, or no matter how they feel about the, the punishment, whether they agree with it or not. So I think we, those of us who are against capital punishment, look at the individuals involved and think you are scum and I won't cry when you actually die. Uh, you're an awful person. And yet it's the principle that is the most important thing. And of course, lives aren't equal, but I think we have to have some sort of sense of equal protection, equal protection for somebody, whether they're rich, poor, indigenous, white, black, whatever. I think we have to have that ideal of equal protection. That's what I mean really by moral equality. Were you always against this or is this something that happened or did something happen that made you change your mind? That's a nice question to answer because then it makes me reflect on, on what I, I was thinking, but also it makes me reflect on the generational differences between us because it wasn't an issue when, you know, it was never an issue until the 1990s when you had Dr. Kevorkian coming up. What set me off against it was when I was 18, I had a friend who went down to the United States, bought a pistol and shot himself in the head. And so this was a kind of thing that all of us, when, when you're 18, this is, you know, a sort of, uh, life defining moment in many ways. And it, it made us all sort of go out as you do when you're 18, 19 and drink and, uh, talk about, you know, was it my fault? You know, we didn't reach out to the young man and you know, whose fault is that? And, and what is this about? I remember one of my friends who worked with his father. And that's the problem. We all knew the whole family as well. Uh, I worked at the same company his father did, and this other friend worked right beside his father. And she said it was just wrong. You know, he's absolutely destroyed his family. He's absolutely horrendously affected people. And, and, you know, I thought that was a very, very insightful way to respond to it. Um, not just to condemn the person because of course, you, you know, you say this person was wrong. I forgive them now. And we all need to for our own sakes, but it, it was a wrong action. And so that kind of made me think when Kevorkian came along in the 1990s, I don't know whether you're familiar with Kevorkian, Dr. Death, as he was called, who operated his Mercytron in the United States, uh, between 1990 and I think 1998. And I just thought this is wrong. This is, this is, uh, appalling. So it made me really confront the issue before most people were forced to. And then when it came along, I think I wrote my first article against it in 1996. And, uh, so I have been writing about this for a long time, but it really comes, it stems from my attitude towards suicide. Why do you think so many countries are now in favor that you said, you know, this wasn't an issue when you were younger, but now, now it is what happened? Well, I think the, it's inherent to the issue in some ways in it is a why not question. And so people say, oh, people are suffering and why can't we help them? And that's a, a very difficult question to answer unless you're very determined to take up the, the uh, whole debate and work out why not. But very, very few people go beyond the why not. And the, pro the other problem is 
that it's posed in terms of religion. So the why not is because God created life. Now, those of us who are atheists uh, don't think that God is the author of life. And the immediate response is, hey, get your religious laws off of me and off of everything I do. We don't accept it in, in for instance, a relation to abortion. So why would we accept it in relation to uh, assisted suicide in euthanasia? So I think that's the key question. So you can see a lot of post-Catholic countries taking it up at the moment. But let's not forget that it's also been very um, unsuccessful in many different ways. There have been at least 250 attempts in the United States of trying to change the law. And yet there are, I think, 10 territories, perhaps 11 now, where uh, states and territories where it is legal. So it's, it's not as successful as we might think, particularly in areas like the United States, which are more democratically governed, shall we say, than Canada, which uh, really snuck it through on the basis of a court judgment. So I think that's what's, what's causing it, but it's, it's inherent to the whole thing. We have the harder argument on our side because it's a why not question. Do you think that um, health systems have anything to do with it? I, or is that too cynical uh, a reasoning? So you've got countries where you have public health systems that are on their knees and there are some horrible stories coming out of Canada. You know, Roger Foley, for instance, who asked for assisted living and um, kept being offered assisted dying. And they very strongly hinted that his care was quite expensive. If I had self-directed funding, then I'd be fine. But but if you weren't, you just you can just apply to get assisted. If you want to end your life, like you know, I mean, you don't have to do it in some dramatic manner. You can apply for assisted, you know. Well, they already presented the outcome option to me, but it's like, why force me to end my life when... Oh, no, 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 hang on here. I'm saying if you feel that way, uh, you know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I'm saying I don't want you to be here and wanting to take your life in some... If you're having any thoughts, because you always have any thoughts. Well, because I'm trapped, it's my intolerable suffering is due to the system creating it. In an audio recording that is no longer available online from September 2017, Foley is heard speaking to a man about what he describes as the hospital's attempts to forcefully discharge him with threats of a hefty hospital bill. Foley asks him how much he'd have to pay to remain in the hospital, and the man replies, I don't know what the exact number is, but it is north of $1,500 a day. Foley then communicates that he feels pressured into accepting MAID and worries that there aren't any plans for his care and his rights as a patient are being violated. He says, You have already violated my preferences, so what is the plan that you know of? Roger, this is not my show, the man replies. I told you my piece of this was to talk to you about if you had an interest in assisted dying. I think that's part of it in certain circumstance. It's a bit like doctors. When, when you go to the doctor and you say, give me antibiotics and the doctor says, no, we've had some and you keep on going, there will be a tendency after the 11th time to the doctor oh, here, go away, leave me alone. Uh, and I think that will also take place in relation to assisted diet. Certainly you can see evidence of that in the Netherlands where I have some colleagues who've done a study of, of how it actually works 
emulation. It's the squeaky wheel that gets the oil uh, is the rule there. I think it's a little bit cynical to think that the people who are doing it are doing it specifically to save money, though. Yes, there are there are there is an, a money saving aspect, and the Canadian government has published a report in 2020 about how it can save up to um, $54,000 per person in relation to the more recent legislation. That's when the mental illness, uh, thing comes up in, which is now being, being put off. So who knows when it'll come up, but, um, you know, it's, it's there, there has been a report saying that you can save all of this money. It's not massive amounts of money though, that you're going to save. It's more, I think, what it shares with the first time, the first iteration of this whole discussion in the early 1900s is that there's this concept of streamlining society, of getting rid of unnecessary suffering, unnecessary people, people whose lives are not convenient to themselves or to society. Why do we keep them here? So I think it's more about this sort of broad streamlining of society. Uh, that people are considering, whereas I don't think it's it's necessarily immediately about the money. This idea of you know getting rid of unnecessary people and unnecessary suffering, um, it smacks obviously of eugenics, right? Um, that the early kind of eugenics movement. I don't know why people tend to think like the terrible things that happened in the past were like evil people going, ha, ha, ha. No, they were driven by what, like a lot of people had a kind of um, a caring ethos that guided them, that by, that eugenics would re remove a lot of the suffering in the world, that they were preventing unnecessary suffering by sterilizing people, this sort of thing. Do you think that there's a connection between that kind of broader, I don't know, philosophy that, that led to eugenics you know, um, where it's a kind of an, an anti-humanism, right? This, or an anti kind of universalism that there are, there are problems in the world and the problems are down to particular people and particularities that are kind of ingrained in them. And if we just kind of push them aside, then we solve these problems again. Is that too cynical a reading? <laughs> uh, perhaps. Well, no, I mean, I think, first of all, I think you're absolutely right to, to point to eugenics as being very important to this story because this is when it was raised before, uh, you had three different sort of ways of, um, quote, improving the race as they had it at that stage, eugenics, euthanasia, and, um, racial hygiene. And these three okay. things went together and people really thought that this is the future. And these were good people, just as the same as, as people who are in favor of assisted dying and euthanasia. And even, you know, those, those most, I mean, I've been debating with these people for a long time and they're not nasty sort of evil, uh, 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 where's my top hat and I must, uh, you know, make, you know, they're, they're not Nazis, um, at all. And yet they share this kind of idea that we can streamline society, that we can get rid of these unnecessary edges of life and we can get rid of the unnecessary people and you know, that it's, it's, uh, death is a very good way of doing this youth eugenics, preventing certain people from being born is a good way of doing things. And you know, trying to improve the race is a good thing. And of course, all three of these things lead to bad consequences as we only too well know from history. 
I, I, yeah, the major difference being that it's not explicitly about like improving the population or anything like that, but it is about kind of sanding off the edges of, of suffering and trying to deal with things that don't have key performance indicators attached to them, you know, like what does death do? What does being sick do? What does, you know, it's useless. Um, And so you have a way of trying to kind of get rid of all of this, this uselessness. Uh, Just to give an example of this, a a family member of mine, very close family member came very, is, is ill stage four cancer. And um, he was told, uh, first of all, they didn't tell him he had cancer when it was stage three. There was just no sense of urgency of like saving a life. No. Uh, just let him carry on. And then finally they tell him, but it's stage four at this point, And they say, oh, there's nothing we can do. And um, we had done research and stuff and had found that actually there was, there was something that could be done, but it was very expensive. And they didn't mention it or anything like that. And they had counseled him to accept death. That, and it, it was very much framed in these kind of progressive terms, like, oh, our culture has a problem with accepting death, da 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 and uh, I remember I was telling this story and I was very upset about this because this person was not old, old you know, not at the, in their 80s or something like that when you make these kinds of arguments. He's relatively young, still raising a 17-year-old. Anyway, I was talking about this and uh, to, to a friend of mine out, out in public after a conference, you know, you go for a drink or whatever afterward. And I wasn't even sitting at the same table as this person, but this person interrupts our conversation and says, he must accept it. He must accept death. We can't afford all of these people who think that they can get anything they want. <laughs> He's like, I work in public health. I know what I'm talking about. He was very passionate about this. And I was like on the verge of tears as I'm like telling my friend this. And he interrupted the conversation to counsel me that we must accept death. You know, and this has become very like a very kind of progressive attitude that we were too fearful of death and that we should accept it. But I think there's something really, really bad going on in a society that doesn't see the value, even even in the hubris of fighting against death. I mean, obviously you accept death as, as inevitable, but after, an, uh, after striving for the lengthening of life and also to make lives that we want to continue living, right? This I think is the core of the progressive ethos. And it scares me that we're moving away from this and that some of our institutions are moving away from this. So our health systems, like you can only say that when a health system stops being about, you know, fixing people when they're sick and starts being about a a health management system. So it's like, I'm here to give you advice about how you should live. Once you get sick, well, (laughs) I don't really want to have to deal with that. Or I want to reduce the, my, you know, and the, the, the person that was sort of telling my family member, you know, there's nothing we can do was very um, clear that it was his fault that he, that he got this cancer, that it was, well, that it was his fault. I mean, this, this is also another aspect that really um, irritates me about this sort of culture, because of course there's a culture that goes along with the whole uh, assisted death, as it's called. And please do ask me about terms, because I want to rant on about those. Um, but it, it's... It's a medicalization of human life and death. And this is what really frustrates me. And it's a reason why, of course, it goes through. People in Canada, for instance, where it's legal, 
um, 99 point something percent of everybody who uh, gets medical assistance in dying opts for euthanasia. They don't want to do it themselves. They want somebody to do it for them. They, they don't, they're not confident that they can go out of this life on their own, despite the fact that they, that people do. And I think there's a sort of tendency of medicalization of the whole process of life. And this is the problem when, when, you know, with your relative, uh, people are making a judgment about the value of that person's continued existence, which is a little bit shocking. And of course, it, medically, it's a stupid thing. You can't judge somebody in medical terms, uh, the value of a life. So I always object when qualities, I don't know whether you know what qualities are, quality adjusted life years, when those are used to assess a life, because some lives are absolutely valuable and some lives aren't. And you can't just, you know, have a medical category to decide whether that's the case or not. And it's just these medics often are playing God uh, in, in a way that really is fairly appalling as well in judging, well, no, you don't value your life, so I'm not going to either. And, you know, yes, you might change your mind if I let you live, but, you know, um, I, I choose to, to accept your word as you have said. And some people are very, very insistent that they want to die on these programs, but many, many people, of course, are depressed. Uh, I've got a colleague who's done some research on suicide rates because one of the great claims is, oh, we're going to prevent all these nasty suicides, which they seem to define as, as using a violent means, they violent suicides as if dying by violent or unviolent means is better or worse. You know, it's, nobody thinks about these things, but they say, oh, we're going to prevent violent suicides by doing this. And in fact, the rate in, for instance, Victoria has raised in, in Australia, the rate in, in elsewhere has certainly not changed in Oregon. It is. Uh, suicide rates have gone up. I think it would be wrong to say definitely there's a correlation. Uh, well, no, there is a correlation, but I don't think causation is the same thing as correlation. So you can't say, oh yes, suicide rates have gone up because of this. They certainly haven't gone down. And I do think that there's a, there's a sense that you're going to find people are, um, yes, feeling that their lives are less worthwhile and feeling that they shouldn't be a burden on society. Uh, rather than, than fighting the disease, uh, in the past. So it, it, hearing your story is, 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 uh, shall we say triggering because <laughs> it, um, it actually really makes me think that doctors do get out of over them. Well, how's a better way to put it? Well, the doctor has replaced the priest at the bedside of the dying person. And you don't really need it. You know, doctors used to say, well, there's nothing more I can do. Uh, so I'll hand you over to the priest. And now the doctor seems to be saying, no, I am, I'm doing everything. I'm playing God. I'm, I'm priest. I'm doctor. I'm everything. And, uh, you know, I need to do your death as well as your life. Whereas I think that the mission of a doctor is to physically make us whole, uh, or if it's a psychiatrist, mentally make us whole, uh, and to, to cure us and to make us comfortable but not to assess our lives and decide that death is a better thing than life in our situation. I think that's an appalling overstep. I think that's a very interesting analogy that you use, the doctor and the priest, because um, I think it's a lot like 
what's happening here is a lot like a pre-modern kind of religious ethos in the sense that the authority for making that decision actually rests elsewhere. Um, and this is something that I've been noticing that part of where this these movements have come from, you know, you have the legacy of, um, you know, patients' rights movements who where people have argued that they are experts in their own suffering. So the doctor doesn't know, you know, necessarily the degree to which I'm suffering. You know, I am an expert in living my life. The doctor doesn't necessarily know that. And so this has led to movements for greater patient autonomy and the reduction of gatekeeping. The, the issue is that a lot of the people who, who, then, bear, who then received the fruits of these uh, movements were not themselves activists. They were not patient activists. They do not come into that doctor-patient relationship with a sense that um, I am a, an expert in my own suffering. I know best here, right? Uh, they're looking to the doctor and they're saying, if you say that I am a candidate for this, or if you say that I am this thing, it must be right because you are the authority, you have the authority, you're the doctor. Whereas the doctor is coming from this legacy of like, if the patient says <laughs> that they are this, then they must be this. You see this a lot, with, you see this with the trans issue as well, where a lot of young trans people are surprised that like after they go through the whole process they're like oh i thought that there was going to be a lot more of a rigorous assessment here but the doctor's like if you say it is that you are then you are and the young person is like well if you say i am then i am <laughs> and so nobody is actually taking responsibility for the treatment and i think when it comes to this particular issue people are they they're deferring authority to each other so like I'm going to apply for this. And if you say I'm a candidate and that it's approved and I must really be. And the doctor's like, well, if you say that you are because you've applied, then you must be. And so in the end, everybody wipes, washes their hands of it and, and defers the authority, not onto God as a priest might have done, but onto a bureaucratic process. We tick the boxes, we signed the forms. And that strikes me as a profound example of the banality of evil. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's an incredible process. It's staving off authority. So as you say, suffering is, uh, you know, a doctor cannot diagnose suffering that is due to the patient. You know, are you suffering? Yes. Um, are you suffering unbearably? Yes. You know, these are questions that doctors can't answer. And the only thing the doctor is there to do when there are safeguards is to say, Sorry, you don't qualify because you are not suffering from this or you're not suffering from that. So it, it becomes a sort of patient-driven thing so that somebody saying, I'm suffering, uh, can normally take it through in a place like Canada. There, there can be some reason found for them to actually qualify. Uh, certainly, this is the way it works in the Netherlands and in Belgium, where it's much more GP-centered. So it's the GP that really does the referrals there. Uh, it's not framed in rights as it is in Canada, which I think is a fascinating thing about Canada. Uh, but that, that probably another podcast and I have, I have to deal with that. But, but yeah, no, I think you, you point to a really interesting thing where it is kicked, authority is kicked out into a bureaucratic process and, uh, it, it, and nobody takes responsibility for this. So it can't be stopped. And that might be another reason um, as you, you know, in relation to your earlier question, why this is taking off in various different countries, because we do know 
that there are political ways that people are, are evading responsibility. In fact, the whole story in Canada is evasion of, of, of authority in the first place of taking any kind of uh, um, responsibility for this, because as we know, the uh, first case in about 2015 resulted in the entire government of Canada, rather than actually taking a vote, which they could have done, deferring to one judge making a comment about the Canadian um, uh, Charter of Rights. And so this one judge decides law. Everybody in, in Parliament goes, oh, well, the judge has spoken and, and we've been ordered, so we have to do this. They could have actually, you know, taken responsibility for it. They didn't. And then, of course, it was expanded. Why? Because one judge in Quebec decided that it was wrong not to allow disabled people people suffering from permanent uh, disabilities from accessing this either. And of course, that's the whole way it's unfolded in Canada in a much more sort of obvious sense than in many other places. This is one of the arguments that I come across all the time when I go on the radio to talk about this or whatever. Um, it's, it's, so it's being tabled in Scotland at the moment and they swear up and down what happened in Canada, this endless extension of assisted dying to everybody isn't going to happen in Scotland. They're going to have really strong safeguards. Uh, why is that not a good argument? Well, because this is the same argument Canada made in relation to Netherlands and Belgium. And look what's happened in Canada. You know, it's expanded. And in some ways, Canadians are fighting with um, Belgium and Netherlands to be the most progressive kind of uh, nation and and it's expanded hugely and that's the problem is there's an inherent tendency towards expansion because if you say this is a medical treatment for unbearable suffering you need to treat anybody who's un suffering unbearably and not only that but you can't have little qualifications like for instance um i don't know you can't have uh, autonomy uh, the person has to agree to it because then you're not being compassionate. If they're suffering unbearable, unbearably and they're suffering from dementia and therefore can't ascend to it, you know, shall we allow it? And the question has always been answered, yes. So Belgium and the Netherlands have allowed it. And there's a lot of talk in Canada about allowing it. The other talk is, of course, about children. Because uh, if a child is suffering unbearably, how can you deny that child medical treatment that other people can have for unbearable suffering. So it has this tendency to go further and further. As soon as you define death as medical treatment, people will start demanding it and, and the categories will expand. And uh, I've been writing about this for long enough that I've seen this process happen and uh, it will continue to happen. And that's the message for Scotland is if you take a step off this moral precipice, it's not a slippery slope, it's a moral precipice, then, you know, you will fall. But if people are demanding it, is it really that wrong then? Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two. <laughs>